You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Amen. Well, good morning again, and let me invite you to turn back to Acts chapter 15. We're going to pick right where we left off in Acts chapter 15, verse 22. So let me continue reading for us. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, as your word is preached, Father, we pray that your spirit would come and, Lord, illuminate our minds, illuminate our hearts so that we can understand what your word has to teach us about the nature of the gospel, about the importance of its clarity. And, Father, we pray, Lord, that Redemption Church would be a people formed by the gospel and who preaches the unchanging gospel to our culture today. Father, we pray, Lord, that above all, Christ would be glorified, and Lord, that you might draw men and women unto yourself this day. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the message that we preach here at Redemption Church, indeed the message every church ought to be preaching, is the gospel, right? The gospel. That's a word we use a lot. And it's a word that at its core means good news. It's the good news, of course, of Jesus Christ. And so because this is the message the church has to proclaim, there really is no excuse then for confusion about this message, about this gospel. So woe to those who not only confuse the gospel of Jesus Christ, but who distort it, who twist it and alter it into some sort of false teaching. You see, if we believe that the gospel is the message of the church, that it is the message of salvation, misunderstandings about the gospel is is not just an error, 
but it's an error that paves the way to hell itself. And so that's serious of an issue. And so one of the major problems facing the church of the Lord Jesus Christ today is gospel confusion. Gospel confusion. Many Christians just simply can't articulate what the gospel is. And sadly, many preachers have actually hollowed out the gospel and they've taken the shell of it and its language, but they've filled it with something that's not biblical. They've filled it with with errors, things like self-help or social change. That's not what the Bible says the gospel is. And the confusing part, right, the troubling part is that these preachers and teachers will use language that sounds like the gospel, but when you actually inspect what's being said with discernment, they're actually preaching something contrary to the biblical gospel. All this to say, I believe that the greatest need in the church today is a recovery of the biblical gospel. And for the church to make that gospel clear and explicit. Any distortions of the gospel, any imposters of it, the church must reject. We have to preach this good news of salvation with great clarity. That the gospel of grace is that Jesus came to save sinners. That he paid the penalty for our sin upon the cross. So that by faith in Jesus Christ, we might receive by God's precious gift, Jesus's righteousness, that we're forgiven of our sins and that we're granted eternal life and that we're guaranteed resurrection from the dead as our hearts are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You see, this is the gospel that we preach And to receive salvation in Christ, the good news of this is that all we must do is repent of our sin and put our faith in Jesus. You see, the gospel is a gospel of God's grace. It's God's grace. Every blessing that we receive from our salvation comes because of God's gracious provision for us. So as we look to Acts 15, this is an important chapter in the book of Acts. In fact, it's the center point of the book of Acts. This is a key event that marks the history of the Christian church. So in your English uh, translation of Acts, there are 12,000 words before Acts 15, and there are 12,000 words after Acts 15, meaning that literary speaking, it's right in the middle. This is the middle of the book of Acts, and here we see the church at the Jerusalem Council clarify what the gospel is, what the gospel of grace is all about. And they do that by refusing to put up any barriers of works as a prerequisite for salvation. So here's the the sermon summary, right? The church must not add barriers to the gospel of grace. The church must not add barriers to the gospel of grace. So as we look at what happens here at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, we're going to do so in in three phases, right? We're going to first look at the debate, second we'll look at the discussion, and third we'll look at the decision. So the debate, the discussion, the decision. Let's first consider the debate. And the debate is really over one key question. What is necessary for salvation? What is necessary for salvation? 
So this debate, Luke highlights for us, produced a great deal of conflict in the early church. And the debate arose as some men in the church, uh, particularly men from the region of Judea, began to teach, this is what, what we see, that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So they're adding circumcision as a prerequisite to the gospel. You have to be circumcised or you cannot be saved. So Paul and Barnabas, you've been with us through the book of Acts. These have been major players in the book of Acts. We followed them on their first missionary journeys. They've been the missionaries to the Gentiles. As you might expect, Paul and Barnabas had major issues with this teaching, right? Luke says, no small dissension and debate with them. Meaning, that's Luke's nice way of saying, this is a big deal, right? This is not just some small, insignificant matter. Major gospel issues are at stake over this question. So, you might be thinking, if you've been following with us through the book of Acts, why is this debate coming up again? Is this, is this again the church wrestling with whether or not Gentiles can be Christians or not? You might be thinking, like, wasn't that resolved Back when Cornelius was converted, back in Acts 11, it seemed like everything was figured out then. Well, the debate here involves the Gentiles, but the debate here isn't over whether Gentiles could become Christians, but how Gentiles could become Christians. That's the question. So the church's rapid growth put a lot of strain on the early church, which started with Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Jewish Christians that valued the law of God. And to understand the tension of the debate, we have to kind of put ourselves in the mindset of a first century Jewish Christian, right? Most of these Jewish Christians, they've spent their whole lives following the commands of the law. And they believe that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, as he is, right? Promised from the law itself. And they have discovered over the course of book, the book of Acts, through the acting of the Holy Spirit, they've discovered that, wait a second, salvation won by the Messiah is not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. And so that leads to a question that they're having. How can Gentiles just ignore God's law? Not only that, but if they did ignore things like the dietary laws or circumcision, how can they have fellowship with Jewish Christians? To put it more simply, one commentator put it like this. He said, how can law-observing Jewish Christians and law-ignoring Gentile Christians coexist? That's really at the crux of this debate. So two sides began to form around this question. The first group made up of Jewish Christians, some of which Luke says were, were converted as Pharisees, they believed and the, the promises of salvation is for Israel. It's for Israel. Gentiles, they can share in Israel's promise, but they had to first become converts of Judaism, like Cornelius, who was a God-fearer, and then they could become Christians. The second group, led by Paul and Barnabas, rejected that thought. They rejected any barrier placed in front of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because they reason that if you make circumcision a requirement before becoming a Christian, then you are actually altering the very nature of the gospel. They insisted that the gospel comes as a gracious gift from God, not by our own obedience. So forcing the Gentiles to become converts to Judaism 
by making them obey the law, it actually contradicts the very gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They would say that we are not saved by works of the law, but we're saved by grace through faith. So this is the debate. This is the two sides. And you can imagine how this debate became quite fierce in the first century. Is the Christian church a continuation of the old covenant promises so that everyone needs to be incorporated into God's covenant in Israel? Or is the gospel of Jesus one that is built upon the old covenant, but is actually something altogether new? To what extent is there continuity and discontinuity between the old covenant and the new? It's a big question, one that continues to be asked to this day, right? And so how does the effect of the contents of the gospel we preach, how does that impact the Gentiles who have ignored the law of God? So as you can see, this debate is an important one. And to really make the question, the debate as simple as possible, the question is really one of the most important questions you can ask in your life. How can I be saved? How can I be saved? That's its most basic. That's the fundamental question. But the debate became so intense, sides became so entrenched that the Jerusalem church had to convene a conference, pulling brothers from other churches to come to Jerusalem to discuss this matter and to come to a decision once and for all. And so with all the major leaders of the church here in Jerusalem, the apostles and the elders convened to discuss this matter. So we've seen the debate. Secondly, let's look at the discussion. In the discussion, why place a yoke none can bear? We're going to look at this discussion because it's so fascinating very carefully. Luke summarizes this discussion. You have to remember, this is Luke's summary of the events. We don't have the the word-for-word transcript of what happened in this debate. Luke's giving us a summary of it in his presentation. And Luke, in his summary, highlights three key moments in the discussion that helps the church come to a consensus on this matter. First, he talks about Peter's logic in verse 6 through 11, then Paul's testimony in verse 12, and then James' exegesis in verse 12 through 21. So notice that as they're determining the truth, it's fascinating to see how the early church uses reason, experience, and scripture to come to the right decision on this matter. So by the time James argues from the final authority of God's word, he proposes a solution for the dilemma that everyone agrees upon. But let's look at the discussion a little bit more carefully as we learn just what is the gospel, how it is we are saved. So let's first look at at Peter's logical reasoning here. So as the debate ensues, Peter stands up and he presents an argument from sound reason. And he begins by reminding everyone that in case you forgot, the, the Lord, by his own initiative and his own guidance, used Peter to take the gospel to the Gentile centurion Cornelius back in Acts chapter 10 and 11. Peter's already reported on that. He's just recalling it to their memory. And he talks about how this God knows the heart, and he knows whether someone has truly repented of their sins and trusted in Christ. And so Peter said, God gave to Cornelius the Holy Spirit. This same Holy Spirit that Peter and the rest of the church as Jewish Christians had received. So Peter argues, look at what he says in verse 9 of the text. He says, and he made no distinction 
between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. No distinction. You see, even though they are different ethnicities, Jew and Gentile, and thus they are different in their keeping of the law, the Jews are circumcised, the Gentiles uncircumcised, Peter says God gave the Holy Spirit to both groups of people, not on the basis of their observance of the law, but on the basis of their faith alone. The giving of the Holy Spirit and the salvation in Christ is not determined by the keeping of the law, but by the cleansing of the heart through faith. So if circumcision and the keeping of the law, Peter reasons, if this is necessary for salvation, then, then how do we explain the Holy Spirit going to the Gentiles? So this leads Peter to make an astounding and incredibly winsome argument from reason. Look at what he says in verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Notice what he's doing here. Peter is pointing out the lunacy of trying to have salvation through obedience to the law. He says the demands of the law were impossible for anyone to perfectly obey, including the Jews, including Israel. Peter reminds them Israel's history is pretty checkered when it comes to obedience to the law, right? Recurringly, the fathers of, of the Jews had continual and repeating patterns of failure and disobedience. They failed to uphold the covenant demands of the law. And the law is perfect. It's righteous. It's good. But its demands are far too heavy for weak sinners to be able to bear its weight. You can almost hear Peter here recalling in his mind, remembering Jesus' words on this point. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, the only reasons any of us can be saved is because we have a Savior who carried the demands of the law and fulfilled them in our place. This is what Peter's arguing here, right? That Jewish Christians, Peter says, that we're not saved by our obedience to the law. After all, we and our fathers, we failed in obeying, obeying the law, but we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. Look at what Peter says in verse 11. He says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Just as they will. It's all by grace, Jew and Gentile alike. So Peter's appeal is grounded in sound logic and reasoning. You can actually set it up as a fairly simple syllogism for those of you that appreciate logic, right? That if the Gentiles have the spirit of God like we have, then they must have salvation the Gentiles were not keeping the law when they received the Spirit. Therefore, law-keeping does not save, but faith in Jesus is what saves. What, what wonderful reasoning Peter makes. Secondly, here we see not only Peter's logic in this discussion, but we also see Paul's testimony here in verse 12. So as Peter presents his argument, Paul and Barnabas come up next, and they reinforce Peter's point by describing their missionary travels. So Luke keeps the comments here pretty brief because we've already read about that first missionary journey. He's not going to recap it all again here for us in the book of Acts. 
But the missionary team recounted about their work among the Gentiles, all the things that we've read and seen already in this first missionary journey as they travel to Cyprus, and then as they go to Antioch and Pisidia and Iconium and Lystra, all those wonderful ways the Lord had worked in those cities, particularly around the Gentiles. So they recounted the miracles and the healings and the reception of the gospel by the Gentiles and the evident working of the Holy Spirit on that first missionary journey. And so their testimony goes on to prove that Cornelius's conversion was not just an anomaly because he was a God-fearer, but rather God has been saving Gentiles all over the world in a similar manner. The church had rapidly grown, particularly among the Gentiles, and they kept coming an increasing number to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Luke doesn't devote too much attention to Paul's words here, In Acts 15, knowing Paul, he probably said a good deal more than just this, right? But Paul is trying to to give Peter and James the the focal point in his presentation of this discussion. But of course, we can go to elsewhere in the New Testament and get Paul's thoughts on this matter, can't we? Particularly in the book of Galatians. Though the dating of the letter of Galatians is a bit contested, I'm convinced that the book of Galatians, which is one of Paul's earliest letters, that it happens in between the first missionary journey and the Jerusalem council, meaning that Paul has already written Galatians by the time we get to Acts 15. And so this famous confrontation described in Galatians between Paul and Peter in Galatians 2, that probably occurred during the famine relief visit back in Acts chapter 11. So that means that we can read Galatians and understand that the intensity of the argument Paul was making for the gospel being by faith alone, and how seriously Paul is taking up this issue as he's going into the Jerusalem council. And so in Galatians, you might remember, Paul is directly rebuking the Judaizers. And he wanted to make circumcision that prerequisite for the gospel. And here, of course, Paul comes out swinging right at the start of the letter in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, where he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Based on Paul's comments here, and this is no small dissension for him, isn't it? This is a big deal. Paul would go on to say in Galatians chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You see, though Luke doesn't share the specifics of Paul's words and testimonies, we can know that Paul is making such arguments before, during, and after the Jerusalem council. The gospel was at stake, and he shared how the Lord had been working in the conversion of the Gentiles, and he insists, insists that salvation comes by faith alone, not by works of the law. And that leads, thirdly, to James's exegesis here in verse 12 through 21. 
So after the reasoning of Peter, and after the testimony of Paul and Barnabas, James responds in agreement by turning to a section of Scripture from the prophet Amos. So this passage of of Scripture from Amos speaks of a time in which the Gentiles will be included, those who are called by my name, Amos says. So this time prophesied about from the Scriptures has now come to pass, James argues. And it's time for the full inclusion of the Gentiles into the promises of the gospel. So in light of this scriptural justification, James puts forward a solution to resolve the tensions. So if salvation is truly by grace alone through faith alone, as it is, then they should not force obedience to the law's commands upon the Gentiles. However, and this is the tension, right? Gentiles and Jewish Christians need to be able to fellowship with one another, even though they differ in their dietary practices, for example. So James proposes a solution that minimizes any potential offense between Jew and Gentile Christians. That's the, the main thing James is proposing here, is how to keep these two ethnic groups in the church, one, in minimizing offense. So as James says, there are Jews who read Moses in the synagogue every Sabbath. And so James doesn't want to lose the opportunity to reach the Jews by the unnecessary offense of Gentile eating habits. So he proposes four behaviors. He proposes three of them, which are focused primarily on food. One, that they're not to eat food polluted by idols. Two, they aren't to eat things that are strangled, meat with blood in it. And they're not to eat, thirdly, blood itself. So James proposes these three, not because they're necessary for salvation, but he proposes them as an evangelistic attempt to be, as what Paul would say, all things to all people in hopes of winning the Jews to Christ. So the fourth instruction isn't dietary in nature, but it is a moral command to abstain from sexual immorality. So the pagan world, as you might know a little bit from Roman culture, was filled with sexual promiscuity and cultic prostitution. So though the Gentiles don't need to become Jews in order to become Christians, James is emphasizing rightly that a Christian is expected to live a life of holiness and purity after their salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Gentiles need to understand that their moral life, including their sexual life, changes because of their salvation in Jesus. So you can see how this discussion helps provide such clarity on this issue, right? The logic of Peter, the the testimony of Paul, the exegesis of James. And so the council comes to a united conclusion. Obedience to the law is not necessary for salvation. Gentiles should be encouraged to live in a way that is morally pure based upon their salvation in Christ. And they should live in a way that doesn't unnecessarily offend Jews from believing in the gospel. All the while, the gospel of grace alone through faith alone is preserved. So that's this discussion. Let's thirdly look at the decision. And this is a question for us as we consider the last few verses here, is how can we make the gospel clear? How can we communicate it? How can we get the news out? So the council agreed with James's proposals. They chose to send Paul and Barnabas along with Judas and Silas with a letter kind of summarizing the council's decision on the matter, bringing clarity to this contested issue. So the council ends with unity, ends with peace, 
But most importantly, it ends with clarity. Clarity over what the gospel is. So as we seek to put this chapter, Acts 15, into practice, we have questions to wrestle with in our own day, don't we? How can we make the gospel clear? You see, the Jerusalem Council shows us that the church has to be clear on the gospel message. Ambiguity and imprecision risks distorting the gospel into something altogether different. So each generation, including our own, each generation of Christians have to commit themselves not only to receiving the gospel message, but accurately communicating it to the next generation. This is the challenge every generation of Christians have to face. You see, when churches abandon this one true gospel, it typically doesn't happen in a single sermon. That's not typically the way it happens. But it happens through this clumsy dropping of the baton between one generation and the next. So one generation will believe the gospel. The second generation just kind of assumes the gospel. The third generation ignores the gospel, and the fourth generation abandons the gospel. Right? That has been the pattern in our country since its founding, right? And has sadly happened to so many churches and denominations. So let me offer a few brief explanations, and these are very brief, few applications on how I think we can make the gospel clear to our own generation. First, we defend the gospel of grace. We defend the gospel of grace. You see, gra grace tends to just baffle the human heart, which is just so prone to legalism, right? We want to be able to do something, contribute something to our salvation. We want to add requirements to salvation, something we can add with our own hands and energy and efforts. And so the church's recurring temptation throughout its history is to try to add to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, legalism was the first and it's the longest lasting heresy in the Christian church. It just refuses to go away. You can't require obedience to the law in front of the gospel. When you do that, you distort and abandon the true gospel, which is by God's grace, right? Isn't that the recurring emphasis of this passage? That salvation comes by God's grace, meaning it comes by God's initiative, not yours. His love, his mercy, his gifts. So anytime we want to add to the gospel, it robs God of his rightful glory. And it means that we're trying to steal it from him in some sense by trying to add our own little works to it. You see, anyone who adds any sort of precondition of works to the gospel isn't preaching the gospel. Something else. Salvation comes only by repenting of sins and trusting by faith in Jesus and receiving salvation by the grace of God. We have to defend repeatedly the gospel of grace. But secondly, we ought to evangelize our children. Right? We ought to evangelize our children. If you want to pass the gospel faithfully, the next generation, this is so important. You see, the, the heresy of legalism, of works-based salvation, it's often unknowingly passed down by Christian parents and well-meaning children's ministries, right? That's why we have to be so careful, so careful in helping our children understand the biblical gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we look at this text on Father's Days of all day, right? This is an important reminder for every dad out there in particular to make sure that the gospel is clearly taught explicitly in your home. 
the biblical gospel. Because it's so easy to make the Christian faith a list of rules and regulations we impose upon the young so that they end up growing up in a church and they are just crushed with this expectation of a moral life that they cannot live. So we have to remind ourselves, children aren't born Christians. They're not. They, like all of us, they are born depraved sinners condemned before God in desperate need of grace, like we all are. And even though we teach children God's standards and laws, we should do that. We have to repeatedly remind them that they can't save themselves. They can't save themselves. Woe unto us as parents and as a church if we place the yoke of the law on our children without offering them the light and easy burden of the yoke of Jesus Christ. We have to constantly remind our children of their need. That's why we preach the law and teach the law to them. But we have to help them see their need and share our own need with them so that we can all together look to our desperate need for God's grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to point them to their only hope. And their only hope isn't do better and try harder, but it's Jesus Christ. We have to keep reemphasizing that time and time again, because as sinners, we naturally go into that legalistic mindset. So we have to emphasize it repeatedly as we're sharing the gospel with our children, that the gospel is by God's grace. And thirdly, we make the gospel explicit. Explicit. Every sermon, every time of teaching, every children's lesson, every prayer, every time we take the Lord's Supper, everything we do as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we ought to seek to make the gospel explicit because we are a forgetful bunch, right? We have a hard time remembering what we had for breakfast, let alone the gospel, right? We need to be reminded over and over and over again of the the elementary basic components of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because guess what? No matter how old you get, no matter how long you've been following Jesus, you never graduate from the gospel. And we never grow tired of hearing it because Lord knows we need to hear it over and over and over again. So week after week, we must make the gospel explicit in our church and in our life together as a church. We must never assume it. This is not only for our own sake as we grow in the Lord, but this is also for every person who comes to Redemption Church, no matter where they've come from. We want every person who walks in to walk away from our service knowing the gospel and what they must do to be saved. So there is so much more we could say about how we can make the gospel clear in our generation. Indeed, as Redemption Church, we want our identity to be centered upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. So my prayer is that the Lord would find us faithful in preaching the gospel to our city, to our community, and that we would pass it down faithfully to the next generation. May we never add to the gospel. May we never assume the gospel. But may we preach this radical grace of God given to us in Jesus, that it is by his blood alone that we are forgiven that it is by his sacrifice our sins are atoned, that it is by his life that we are given eternal life, that there is nothing we can do to earn it, no circumcision, no works of our hands can save us, only Jesus, only grace, only the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you. 
And Lord, we pray, Lord, that within our hearts and within our minds and within our church, Lord, that we would be explicit and clear on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to see, Lord, that there's nothing we can add, no barriers we can put up to salvation. But Lord, help us to preach to our own hearts as well as to this lost and dying world. Lord, the free grace of Jesus Christ offered in the gospel. Lord, I pray, Lord, for perhaps many who are here this morning, Lord, who don't know the gospel or who really don't understand what the Christian faith is all about. Lord, I pray that today, Lord, as they've heard the gospel preached from Acts 15, Lord, that they would see their own need for a Savior. And Lord, that they wouldn't seek to do anything to earn salvation, but Lord, that they would repent and come to Jesus and trust Jesus by faith. And Lord, that you might save them and give them eternal life through your son. God, we are so grateful, Lord, that you have given us Jesus as our savior. What a blessed savior that he is. Full of grace, full of mercy, full of patience. Father, we are grateful that he fulfilled the demands of the law in our place. And Lord, that we are saved by grace alone. So Father, as we worship you, as we come to your table, Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would remind us of these precious truths, Lord, that they would seep deep within our hearts, that we would proclaim them boldly around our, our city, and Lord, that they would be on the lips as we teach our children, Lord, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.